Hey guys, I just wanted to sneak in here real quick and remind you that Brooke and I have actually created an incredible online self-guided audio course just for you. It's live right now. Click the link in the description box below to check it out. If you're tired of diets, having anxiety around food, worrying about what to eat, how much to eat, and when to eat, then this course is perfect for you. We take you from where you're at now to a life of food freedom. There's 10 modules filled with audio lectures and journal prompts that will help you dig deep and make lasting change. Okay, thanks for listening. And now back to the show. Hey, 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 welcome back, Diet Riders. To the Diet Riot Podcast. I'm Brooke Miller. I'm Alyssa Miller. We're both dietitians. Both moms. And both from the Midwest. But live in Colorado. Yes, and we actually have a guest here that is also from Wisconsin. So, of course, all the Wisconsinites, (laughs) you know. Yes, Um, but she also ventured out of Wisconsin as well. So, we are going to kick it over to our guest, Andrea. And then, if you want to introduce yourself and what you do for a job. Yeah. So, I'm Andrea Wetterow. I am a licensed clinical social worker in the state of Washington. Um, And I am just kind of branching out of working for a company that focused on treating eating disorders, um, anxiety, depression, trauma. Um, And now I'm kind of branching out and starting my own private practice. So um, my specialties will be treating eating disorder and traumas and and also perinatal mental health. So, um, but I'm also willing to take take anyone that needs um, support or just wanting to work on any healing that they you want. Um, so yeah. That's awesome. So you, um, did you start in the eating disorder, disordered eating field right off the bat, like right out of college or, um, how did you get into the kind of that arena? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I got my undergrad at university of Wisconsin, Madison in psychology. Um, and then I went and got my master's at the university of Washington, Seattle. Uh, I got that in social work. Um, and then for my advanced internship, um, for my program, I got a really incredible um, internship at a local eating disorder treatment facility called the Emily Program. Um, and just had the, that whole school year, I had just the most amazing experience of learning from incredible therapists and dietitians. Um, you know, kind of like I was learning from the best of the best and um, and just kind of really develop, develop that specialty. And then after I graduated, I worked for um, community mental health. Um, it was really important to me as a social worker to be able to dedicate some years to offering um, like eating disorder treatment to people. P- people on Medicaid don't get that those opportunities right. to be able to get a lot of eating disorder treatment resources. And so a colleague, a colleague and I started an eating disorder support group. Um, in our clinic. And then I got a lot of the clients that came in that had eating disorders or disordered eating. Um, And then I got an amazing job at Eating Recovery Center, which is another eating disorder treatment facility in Washington. It's in Bellevue, so just outside of Seattle. Um, And I worked there for the past three years. And like, again, the best of the best, just incredible human beings, um, therapists, dietitians that 
just learning from them and working with them was an incredible experience. Um, so really over the past six years, I've gotten experience in with eating disorders, um, treating them on an outpatient level of care, um, IOP, which is intensive outpatient, PHP is partial hospitalization, and then residential. So almost all the levels of care for treating eating disorders. Wow, that's incredible. You have a lot of experience. That's incredible. Yeah. That's yeah. So, and then, oh, go ahead. Nope, you go ahead. Oh, uh, it was just kind of in the experience of working with eating disorders that I started noticing a lot of, I was working with adults um, who had eating disorders and something I was noticing was um, there was a lot of birth parents that were coming in who um, either had previously had an eating disorder and they relapsed during their pregnancy or in their postpartum um, or their pregnancy triggered an eating disorder um, or it was just... um, they already had an eating disorder, but there was something about like being pregnant gave them permission to nourish their bodies because it was for their baby and not for themselves. And then after, after the baby was born then that changed, like they didn't have that permission anymore. Um, and so I was just really fascinated by that, um, that complex of like that someone is willing to feels that they are able and worthy to, to nourish themselves for their child, but don't feel worthy for themselves. Um, and so that's when I started really getting interested in perinatal mental health. Uh, and I'm currently working towards getting my certification in perinatal mental health right now. Um, Can you explain really quick for our listeners who may not know what perinatal means? Sure. Perinatal is the time of um, either, you know, it's, it's pre, during, and post birth. So pregnancy, during your birthing experience, and then postpartum is t- typically like that year after the baby is born. Um and I mean, you both are moms, you know, like that is a really transformational process and um, yep. <laughs> hormones are going crazy and our bodies are changing and doing incredible things. And, um, you know, it's just like, it's a huge time in the birth parents life that we really don't talk about that often. You know, we usually ask, how's the baby doing? Um, which is a good question. And mm-hmm. we also don't ask like how the birth parents are doing. Yeah. Oh my gosh. There's so many hormonal changes. <laughs> Like I can't even, Mm -hmm. oh my gosh. Yeah. I started experiencing postpartum, uh, postpartum anxiety and anxiety while I was pregnant. And granted I had a very high risk, very rough pregnancy. And that's, I think where a lot of it stemmed, but oh my gosh. I mean, I saw, I've I've gone to therapy since and I'm really Mm -hmm. grateful for it, but I think that a lot of moms, they're just so hyper-focused on the baby and they put themselves on the back burner. And it's so easy to let those hormones catch up with you without you realizing. And then one day it just like slaps you in the face. Oh my gosh, I need help because there's so much hormonally. And then just the stress of being a parent, especially a first time mom. I mean, it's, it's, um, but I wanted to ask you a few questions. So it yeah. sounds like you're working more with moms. Um, I noticed, and I don't know if Alyssa can attest to this too, but during my pregnancy, I did feel like my intuitive eating just became so much easier because like you said, you're, you're so focused on some, something else that's not you mm-hmm. and just getting calories in. You're like, I need energy. I need this. And oh. then I'm just so thankful that I had already started an intuitive eating journey for so long before I got pregnant because the pregnancy just made it easier. And then postpartum, you know, I had been doing it for so long that I feel like I never dealt with, I'm fortunate. I didn't deal with 
I need to get my body back after the baby. I had zero stress about losing the baby weight. And I don't Mm -hmm. think that's normal. I don't think most women are like that. And I think the only reason I didn't have that stress and anxiety was because I've done intuitive eating for so, so, so long. So do you feel like it is important that people, if they feel like they don't have a good relationship with food or their body, Obviously, they need to get help as soon as possible, but can you just kind of dive into why getting help before pregnancy is so important so that, you know, the relapse and the things that you see, just, yeah, how that affects everything for you, for what you've seen? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, like, intuitive eating is the goal, right? I think, like, that for anybody, um, and I think, like, just, like I said, like, pregnancy is such a transformational process that... there's nothing in our control, you know, when it comes to the development of the baby, the the baby's health, the the birth parent's health, like how the birth is going to go, how postpartum is going to go. These things are just feel out of control. And then, you know, as human beings, we try to to grasp for things that we can find some sense of like agency and control. And I think a lot of times it does come back to the body and what we eat. And so I do wonder if like, you know, like if that's just like, a, like focusing on that for a lot of birth parents is, you know, that, that way of coping with the unknown. And I think like learning how to intuitively eat, um, I think is a piece of the puzzle of, um, like how do we find other ways of coping with that unknown, um, versus feeling the need to control with what we're eating. And then with being able to intuitively eat, it's then like being able to tune into your body and give it what it needs in this moment rather than like what you think you should be doing. Um, so I think that's kind of like, does that make sense? It's kind of like yeah. this, this two-parter of like recognizing that there are other ways of coping. And also I still need to nourish my body in the way that, in the way that it needs. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like most of the clients that you see, um, that there was trauma underlying it or what kind of stems eating disorders from what you've seen? Because Alyssa and I always talk about, it's not about the food. If you struggle with an eating disorder, it's not the food itself you're struggling with. It's so much bigger than that. We're not therapists. So this is your specialty, but I would love to hear, you know, typically what, what are some signs that you see and just signs that we should be looking out for, for our friends, our sisters, our, you know, our moms. Yeah. Oh, there's so many factors. And I think like, I mean, you look at messages from the media, social factors, um, messages from family members. If a parent is dieting, typically that like increases the risk of like a child having disordered eating or eating disorder or, or negative body image. Um, you think about like personality traits are a huge thing too. So like, um, if you're a perfectionist, you might, you're, you might be more likely to develop anorexia, or if you tend to be someone who's a bit more impulsive, that person might be more at risk of developing bulimia. Um, you know, and those aren't, you know, they're not um, like directly related just because you're a perfectionist doesn't mean you're going to have anorexia, but it is an important trait of thinking like um, we need to consider that personality traits also have a role. So you're thinking about like messages, um, personality traits, um, and then, yeah, I think trauma is a huge thing. Um, and that like an eating disorder is a coping skill. It's, it works until it doesn't, it provides a sense of, of control. It provides a sense of safety for, for that person. And especially like trauma, we hold trauma in our bodies. Um, and so eating disorders are a way of numbing from our bodies. 
And that's a way of just kind of avoiding and distracting um, rather than coping and actually tending to what's happening. It's this maladaptive coping of like, I, I can avoid this right now. I don't have to feel this. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's a lot of factors, but yeah, trauma is a really big one. And especially with trauma, I think when we talk about trauma, we think of like the big T traumas, which is like death and car accidents and natural disasters, but really it can be um, developmental trauma. It could be attachment trauma, relational trauma, um, and stress and trauma are on the same continuum. So even if like we're experiencing prolonged stress, our body can be interpreting that as trauma. So, you know, it just kind of validating that, um, Trauma can be an underlying factor for a lot of people with eating disorders, even, even if they don't consider that they've experienced trauma. Yeah, I, I love, sorry, yes, I so, love no, that so <laughs> you just said that because that was my <laughs> biggest thing when I went to therapy. For my therapist to convince me I've experienced trauma was yeah. like the biggest battle we had. I was like, mm-hmm. I might need to find a new therapist. What I've gone through is not trauma because mm-hmm. it's so easy to belittle what you have gone through when you're looking at someone who has like post-traumatic stress disorder mm-hmm. from war or something. You know, it's mm-hmm. like we have these ideas of what constitutes trauma and what doesn't, but yeah. it's all outward. I have very rarely, if ever, met someone to be like, I've the, I'm the only one who's ever experienced trauma. No one else understands. It's like, mm-hmm. no, no, no. We A lot of times, a lot of us think what we've experienced isn't trauma because it's not big enough. Like you said, big T trauma. I love that. I've never heard that before. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that idea because we really do, like right now, we're in quarantine, right? And yeah. this is like, what a great example you said of like prolonged mm-hmm. stress. Yes, mm-hmm. we're sitting on our couch and watching Netflix. Like it seems so not traumatizing, but it really mm-hmm. is a large yeah. scale trauma that the entire world is going through right now. So you're going to have some yeah. good job security here. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's a collective trauma, like mm-hmm. stress and trauma typically like, it builds when we don't have a sense of agency. So when we feel like we don't have a sense of control um, or power in a situation and right now we're all, we're all quarantining and we don't know when that's going to end. We don't know, you know, like what's going to happen to, you know, the greater good and the greater, you know, humanity as a whole, like it's just, it's a scary time. And um, so, yeah, it is very traumatizing. Yeah. Well, well, even just job security. I mean, there's so many people out there who've gotten laid off and just the financial burden. And I mean, finances are huge. If, if you're, if you don't know when, how you're going to feed your family, there's just, and I've heard of people who have died from COVID and I have a close friend, you know, her grandpa passed away, not from COVID, Mm -hmm. but they can't even have a funeral. And so, and another friend, you know, their, their friend's mom passed away from COVID and her friend couldn't even see her mom pass away. I mean, it's just, this is a very traumatic time. And so, yeah, I think that a lot of people may go in, you know, to Mm -hmm. coping with some sort of disordered eating, maybe not a full blown Mm -hmm. disorder. Um, Can you also just kind of tell our listeners about the different types of eating disorders you treat and just like a brief um, briefly what they are, because I think some people know what anorexia is, but they don't know what bulimia nervosa is, you know, and it's just, I think it can be confusing. And again, binge eating is a big one that people don't, I don't think people really understand. So you can just talk about a little bit about the eating disorders that you help treat and what they are. I'm going to jump on that question too and add, can you also describe, and I know there's not a finite line, but the difference kind of between disordered eating and a full-blown eating disorder? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. I'll start with the disordered eating one. So I mean, disordered eating, I think it's like, it depends on the intensity of the distress. 
So for like disordered eating, let's say if I started limiting, um, like I'm not going to allow myself to eat gluten if I choose that one food. Um, and then I eat pizza, um, you know, so I'm, I'm definitely kind of like limiting my gluten, whatever. Um, and then I eat pizza that has gluten in it. Um, disordered eating might be like, okay, I'm a little upset about it, but um, you know what? I can, I can just like work through this. It's okay. Um, but I think the disordered piece is like the obsession over like, okay, I have to make sure I don't have gluten in anything. Um, I think like an eating disorder kind of feels like if I find out that there's gluten in that pizza, my whole day is ruined. Um, I need to go like work out, do this, or I need to, um, restrict for the next day. It just, there's, there's, um, it's a different level of distress. Um, and I think it's also comes down to like the DSM five of, you know, do you meet the criteria, um, for an eating disorder? Um, and I think like they can, they can look like each other a lot, disordered eating and eating disorder. Cause I think there's a level of distress with both of them. Um, but like with an eating disorder, you know, there's anorexia nervosa, um, where that one is, you know, commonly associated with restricting. Um, there's an intense fear of weight gain. Uh, they typically have low body weight. Um, and then bulimia nervosa is typically with a binge purge cycle. So um, the binge can look like, um, you know, a, like a, a large amount of food in one sitting. Um, and then purging can look like a various, you know, um, various different ways, which can include compulsive exercise um, or the stereotypical um, vomiting. Or laxatives too, right? Laxatives as well. Yeah. Um, and now there's actually a new, a kind of a, a newer type of bulimia, a diabulimia. So a person with diabetes um, abusing their insulin, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, in terms of like, those are like the two that I feel like people know. Um, but then there's also, I mean, there's also, um, I can't remember which one's actually using the DSM-5, if it's unspecified eating disorder or if it's not otherwise not otherwise specified eating disorder. Um, so that's when you meet some criteria, but not others for like specifically anorexia or bulimia. Um, there's also binge eating disorder, which is when somebody um, binge eats so many times per week. Um, so, I mean, I feel, I feel confident and comfortable working with all, all populations um, of those who have eating disorders, because for me, it's like, you still use pretty similar treatment modalities um, because, you know, like you said, it's not about the food. It's these underlying things that are happening for that person. It's just how the eating disorder might manifest and present itself, um, is, um, very often largely on like personality characteristics and trauma. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And can, oh, I was going to say, can you touch too on how sometimes eating disorders go missed because people look at somebody in a normal size body or maybe a slightly overweight body, you know, categorized by the BMI, but really they're struggling with bulimia nervosa or anorexia nervosa, but it just goes missed because people think they're not skinny enough. Can you kind of touch on what people look like appearance wise and how they can still be struggling? Mm -hmm. A person with an eating disorder could look like anybody that you would see ever, like anywhere, you know, like um, you really can't, judge it by looking at the person. Um, and luckily the DSM-5 removed that part of it for anorexia that you had to have a certain um, BMI, which is awesome. Um, and I think what's hard though is, um, unfortunately it comes down to, to um, like insurance a lot of the times where 
for me working at higher levels of care with eating disorders that insurance need to see certain BMIs when they were willing to cover a certain level of care, um, which was really disheartening because, you know, we would encounter people who have really severe behavior use um, where they needed a residential level of care, but insurance would see it as, but they're not at that they're not at a low enough weight. Um, so that's something that we are still fighting for in the eating disorder field. Um, yeah, unfortunately. Keep fighting for that. That's so <laughs> important. I mean, it's it doesn't show necessarily how bad their disorder is by how much weight they've lost or how much weight they've gained. I mean, your weight can, you know, be part of that, but it doesn't it doesn't necessarily correlate with how severe the disorder is. So that's mm-hmm. so frustrating for you, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. And we also have had um, a an entire episode dedicated basically to um, orthorexia. Yeah. So I wanted to know, because that's relatively new, right? Is that in the DSM-5 yet? Or is that considered like, do you know? Uh, I, don't know. I don't believe it is. I'm not sure. Um, but I mean, that's something that's super prevalent, you know, in Seattle. I think about like, mm-hmm. we have very health conscious people here. I imagine Denver is very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think like, that's where it kind of goes back to that question that you asked Alyssa about disordered eating versus eating disorder, where I think it turn, it starts out as like this very um, like well-intentioned thing of like, I'm going to eat healthy, I'm going to exercise, it's going to be great, taking care of myself. Um, and then disordered eating, it might turn into that, like I kind of what I said earlier is like they might start cutting out entire like, not food groups, but maybe like gluten or added sugar or whatever and being kind of very compulsive about that. Um, and then the eating disorder kind of comes in where then like if they miss a workout, they are, their day is thrown, mm-hmm. um, you know, or if like they eat, um, a piece of birthday cake that they find out then had sugar in it, that can be extremely dysregulating. Um, so yeah, I think orthorexia is a really sneaky, sneaky one because a lot of times in our, in our, in our society, people are praised for being physically fit and eating well and exercising. And, um, however, it can be a really slippery slope to it becoming, um, really unhealthy and unbalanced. Yeah. And I think it's important to note here too, that, um, whoever's listening right now that you hear that disordered eating and full-blown eating disorders, both you can get help. Like there's no like, okay, now it's a full-blown eating disorder or waiting until you're struggling with those obsessive thoughts or it blowing up your entire day. Start now because I can imagine the more damage that's done and the more you go down that rabbit hole and that mental um, kind of cycle of going down to an eating disorder, the harder it is to probably get yourself out. I would imagine, you know, I just know from my Mm -hmm. own experience, the longer um, I see people going down into even just disordered eating, the harder it is to get back back out. So absolutely everyone's worthy of getting help with their relationship with food, regardless of where you're at on that spectrum. I just think it's important for people to know because some people will say, oh, I just have a little disordered eating. I'm not full-fledged eating disorder. And that's why they'll put off getting help or whatnot. And then they'll hear us explain kind of the differences of like, oh, no, I actually am in that category of a full-fledged eating disorder, you know, and I think that's really important to distinguish. So yeah, yeah, and I think I think there's some people just maybe feel some shame or guilt about admitting it. Just like, you know, if you have depression or anxiety, like these are so they're, they're so common. And so I think that the more vocal we can be just about it and, you know, there's help out there for you. You're not alone. And just so people know that. And I know Alyssa and I have talked about anxiety on here and just postpartum, especially mental health on here, because 
I don't think that people talk about it enough and, and say, it's okay. If you're experiencing this, you can get help and here's how we can help you. Um, and so can you kind of dive into that? Maybe there's some embarrassment that you've seen with clients, um, or they're really nervous to tell their husband or sister, or whatever, um, just kind of how to get over that hump of, of admitting it and realizing it and getting out of denial and then maybe how they can share their story and help others and what you've seen. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think kind of going back to what we were saying earlier about um, like comparing our traumas to other people's and then minimizing them. I think that's very similar with eating disorders where um, someone might be noticing having these behaviors and but thinking, well, I'm not as bad as, as this other person. Um, and then they minimize it. Um, but I really think like the red flags and you, know, you think about like if you're obsess- obsessively counting or measuring um, or obsessing how much you ate that day or what you're going to eat tomorrow. Um, like thinking about like how much you're thinking about food and body, um, are red flags. And I think it's also like as a therapist, what I then encourage the people I work with is to think about like, it's not about the food, right? It is and it isn't. So what else is happening for you in your life that you are coping with or distracting with by through like with food? Um, and so I think like what I really would encourage people, um, to, to try is to, you know, to allow themselves to, to honor their experience, to not minimize it and dismiss it. Um, but to really see that, okay, like the things that I'm experiencing, these behaviors that I'm using are, are signs that something else is happening for me on a deeper level. And I am worthy of getting help. Mm -hmm. That's easier said than done. Yeah, I love that, though, coming at it with like taking away the guilt or the shame that you might feel about the experience you're having in your body and looking Mm -hmm. at it more from a place of curiosity, right? And saying, huh, that's really interesting. When I eat this food or when I don't eat this, I feel this way. Um, Whether that's more mental and psychological or physical um, is all part of that intuitive eating process that I wanted to get into with you too is how you use that in practice with your patients. Um, Mm -hmm. But really focusing on having that mindset of almost objective and like curious about what's going on in your body rather than why do I feel that way? I'm so bad. Or I, mm-hmm. I made a huge mistake or why would I do that? I'm such an idiot. You know, the negative self-talk people have when you're able to finally tune into it and hear it is so disheartening to hear. Yeah. And even I know in my personal experience and anyone else's experience that I've actually gotten to that point with them of like, okay, what kind of messages are you sending yourself? Mm-hmm. Even when you don't think you're having negative messages, a lot of times you are, you're avoiding the mirror when you step out of the shower. You, you know, mm-hmm. when you're trying on clothes, you might say something about your body size because of a different size you are or whatnot. It's just, it's really disheartening to hear. So really trying to peel that away and come at it with this objective idea of what's actually happening in my body. Why am I feeling that way? Mm-hmm. And what can I do to get to a place where it's a better relationship with my body? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about your experience and practice, how intuitive eating kind of folds into the, um, the rehabilitation process of mm-hmm. um, disordered yeah. eating or eating disorders. Yeah. So, I mean, where, um, when I was working for, you know, the eating disorder treatment facility, um, like with the different levels of cares, they don't, yeah, they don't really, um, introduce intuitive eating until like lower levels of care. Um, you know, so with residential, it really is about getting, um, getting your, your body kind of back to a safe place. 
um, and at least just nourishing your body, um, partial hospitalization, which is a day program, um, is more about like still continuing that, that process. And then eventually when they kind of are towards the end of their time in that program, going to intensive outpatient, which is like three hours a day, um, they start working on intuitive eating with their, um, dietitians. So they kind of think about like what, okay, like I'm tuning into their body thinking, okay, like how, what is my hunger? What are my hunger cues right now on a scale of like one to 10, you know, how hungry I am and, and picking authentically choosing a snack or a meal that's in line with their hunger cues. Um, and at the same time, um, you know, what you know, what you notice is like, especially when a person's recovering from an eating disorder, intuitive eating, there can be a lot of like shame of that you are actually tuning into your body and you're honoring what it needs. Um, Cause I think it goes back into that, that worthiness piece of I'm not worthy of, of getting what I need. Um, so I think intuitive eating is a really, um, it's a really challenging process at those higher levels of care. And as a therapist, um, I really focus on like, what, what is it, what is happening for that person on a different level? So yes, like maybe they had, a, they had a really difficult time in a meal. I meet with them afterward. We're talking about it. Um, and like I might ask them like, what does it mean about you if you eat this food? You know, like, I think like really questioning, like, what does it mean about them? And they might say, well, I'm, I'm bad if I eat this food. Okay, well, let's talk about that. Like, what does that mean to be bad? I mean, I think, so it's just like really for intuitive eating, it's not just about like doing, you know, like tuning in to your physical hunger cues and listening to like, and knowing what's best for your body. I think it's also like working through those negative thoughts that we have about ourselves um, and these rules that maybe a person places on themselves about what they're able to eat or not eat um, and being able to actively challenge those in the beginning of the intuitive eating process. Um, it's a really long journey, um, you know, not just physically, but also like cognitively. We have, we have to work through all of those thoughts too. I love that yeah. putting that mentality of what do you think about yourself when you're eating these foods and posing it. And Brooke and I talk a lot about, okay, if you think that way about yourself, would you think that way about me if I ate mm-hmm. that food and kind of taking, you know, that personal nature out of it. And something you said was incredible. I just want to repeat it. You said authentic, working on authentically choosing meal and snacks that honor your body according to your hunger cues. I yeah. love that wor- that wording because it's like, that's exactly what intuitive eating is. It's authentically yeah. choosing. There's no mm-hmm. out outside variables. You're not choosing something because someone's watching you. It doesn't matter who you're around. You're able to tune into your body. And, and yeah, it is a long process, even for those of us who haven't had, you know, a clinical um, diagnosis of eating disorders, but it's such a long process and it's ever changing. Right. And that must be really scary for people who love control, you know, myself included, um, to say that, Hey, there's really no end to this. You're never like an intuitive eater. You get a gold stamp. You're done. You are always working with your body because your body's always changing, which is, which is a big mental hurdle too, I think. Yeah. Yeah. How long does treatment typically last for, for most people. So somebody with a clinical eating disorder, I, obviously they're probably always working on it and, and always in recovery, but how long do you, how long does it normally take for you to really, really see some improvements for most people? I, obviously it varies quite a bit. <laughs> That's a really good question. Um, I mean, I would say, I mean, at the higher levels of care, the, the progress might be a little bit slower, right? Because they're, 
they're a little bit, um, the eating disorder is a lot more severe and getting through those, those mental blocks is really, really challenging. Um, but I mean, I would say, you know, it does take, it can take years for someone to recover from an eating disorder. Um, and so I think that can be really disheartening for some people of like, I have to go through this for that long. Um, and so I really just encourage people to think about it like day by day because every person's journey is different um, in terms of how the eating disorder became and also what their recovery journey is going to look like. And it's something that can't be predicted. Um, but I really try to be honest with people that it can take years. Um, and if we think about it in that way, it can feel really defeating. And so how can we just focus on today? And, you know, how can we do the best thing that best we can today? Um, how can we choose the next best thing tomorrow? Because um, it really is a day-by-day process. Um, and, you know, relapse is a real thing. And having, like, maybe, like, slip-ups where behaviors are used is a real thing, too. And I think just being able to – I I use those, those moments as, okay, something's happening for you, again, on a different level. Like, let's talk about what's going on um, so that they can see that this is part of the recovery process. Having those steps back helps you show how, how much – like how much you've gone. Um, so like sometimes those steps are needed in order to see like, okay, I've actually grown more than I thought I did. That's really great perspective. I think to remind yeah. people how far you've come, because when you are moving day by day, you, it feels like you're not moving very far, but then like you said, at the end of a year or two, you look back and wow, you've made a ton of progress and that's mm-hmm. really incredible. And yeah. I guess to circle back kind of where we began talking about how you specialize with people who maybe are triggered by um, getting pregnant or giving birth yeah. and going through that process, because wow, what a huge change on your body. You know, I mean, there's a handful of times your body changes that many, that much in one period of time. And I can attest for sure that your body will completely change. And I can absolutely see how that can be triggering. Like Brooke said, luckily I had started my intuitive eating journey before pregnancy and I found pregnancy helped me so much identify food roles that I was still holding on to, but I had no idea. And then when I was pregnant, I was like, exactly right. You, like you said, Andrea was, I gave myself permission and dropped those food roles. And it kind of became a natural progression back into a deeper state of intuitive eating, which was really incredible for me, but I can absolutely see that being a triggering, triggering experience experience, especially with what our culture has to say about losing the baby weight, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that is such a huge thing that people talk about instantly. Like you said, we check on the baby, how's the baby? And you ask about their weight loss journey, or you look great, or, you know, oh, have you been going to the gym? It looks like you're dropping your weight so fast, you look normal, you know, and all these comments, even though we perceive them as positive, can really affect someone's mental health around what their body's looking like postpartum, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's so important. I know since we started the podcast, I've specifically stopped complimenting people's bodies. Mm -hmm. And years ago, my friends would have babies and they would lose the weight, you know, and again, I don't think that they were doing anything disordered to lose it. I think that they just naturally, you know, lost the weight. And so I used to compliment them because I thought I was being so helpful and I wanted to let them know, oh my gosh, you're doing such a good job. But that doesn't make you a better mom. If you're dropping the weight faster, it doesn't, you know, and, and I think that there's so many ways to compliment a new mom, you know, good job. You're breastfeeding, you're pumping, you're formula feeding, you're, you're waking up in the middle of the night. 
yeah. to feed your baby. You're like keeping your baby you, alive. You have yes. this baby alive. You're doing an amazing job. Do you need a glass of wine? I mean, there's so many <laughs> ways we can support mom. And so yeah. I think that just complimenting her outer appearance is something that maybe we should all kind of just second guess. And I've had people say that to me too, you know, recently. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, I can't believe you had a baby. You look like, you know, you look like you did before. Okay, thank you. But, you know, mm-hmm. I wasn't trying to lose the baby weight. And mm-hmm. so I, I don't know how to necessarily steer those comments. I'm always like, oh, thanks. And then kind of change the subject. <laughs> but I don't know if you have any suggestions or other ways to compliment moms or kind of some things that you see. Sure. I mean, and I'll, I'll come at it from the, from a two point. So like kind of what Alyssa was talking about during pregnancy where, um, like, I mean, Brooke, as you, as you know, like I had an eating disorder in high school, um, and I would consider myself recovered, been recovered for over 10 years. Um, I'm an eating disorder therapist. So, you know, like when I, when I got pregnant, I thought like, Oh, I'm good. Like, this is not going to impact me. Um, and it did, you know, I still had nothing that I acted on, but I still had those thoughts like, um, during that that process where my body was changing and um i'm a a trail runner and a road runner and so for me to not be able to my body not to be able to do what what it had been doing for years was really hard for me and so then i noticed that those negative thoughts started coming back um and so i think it was very helpful like being a therapist that i had the skills and the tools to be able to recognize that and to be able to remember that my body was doing an incredible thing of growing a human being um, and having compassion for myself. Um, and so I just want to validate that even a person who's recovered an eating disorder therapist, I also had that struggle during my pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And then like after, after, uh, Ellie was born, um, my birth was, you know, very traumatic and I had, a, um, a couple postpartum traumas in that first, um, the first couple of months of her life. And I, um, I went back to my pre-pregnancy weight very quickly. That's because of all of the health complications I was experiencing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then when people were telling me, oh, Andrea, you look great. Yes. Like they had no idea that I had experienced horrific traumas, that physical traumas that led to me losing that weight. Um, and, and I think that's kind of, like, you know, so it's not even just eating disorders, but it's also that trauma piece or, or anything else is that we we don't know what's happening for that person when we're when we're making a comment on their body. Um, so I love Brooke that you're saying like, hey, can I get you a glass of wine? Or like, you know, like what do you need? It's I think it's like we need to be asking more of those questions of like, how are you doing? Um, like, what do you need versus commenting on the body because we don't know what that person's story is, right? And then. Well, and if, if you're with a group of friends and maybe your other friend didn't lose the baby weight, you know, yeah. right away, how are you making that other person feel? And then again, you know, you had physical trauma, which is mm-hmm. what caused it. But let's say somebody else did lose the baby weight because they were restricting so much. And now you're complimenting that you're yeah. complimenting that behavior that is just going to trigger them so much more. And so, yeah, yeah I'm, yeah. yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. That's so, so, so important. Yeah. yeah. It's really hard because in our culture, it's all, first of all, for women in general, so much that we talk about around women has to do with their bodies, but mm-hmm. exponentially so during pregnancy and right after. I mean, it is incredible that people feel like they have the right to walk up to you in the grocery store and say, oh, you look so big. It looks like you're ready to pop. I mean, mm-hmm. that is literally things people would say to me. It's like, 
I thank God I didn't have these like horrible messagings of like, oh, I'm huge. I'm huge. I'm huge. I'm huge. You know, I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm big. I love it. Like, look at this baby. You touched my belly, whatever. But there's still part of you that's like, oh my gosh, you're walking up to a complete stranger and tell them how big they look. It's like, this is not appropriate at any age stage, whether you're pregnant or not. And yet people feel like they're perfectly within their rights to come up and comment on your body size during mm-hmm. pregnancy, directly after. And like you said, a lot of times they're complimenting a negative behavior that might be happening behind the scenes that they don't know um, yeah. or triggering some sort of mental issue that they're already struggling with, with gaining weight. Because, you know, pregnancy is a hard transition, regardless of whether you've had a his- past history of eating disorders or not, or just disordered eating. It's a lot to watch your body gain weight and then lose weight and then gain weight and then lose weight or not lose weight. It's it's a it's a roller coaster for sure, but it's an yeah, so I would encourage anyone who's listening right now to really think hard about how you're talking to and how you're approaching women who are pregnant postpartum mm-hmm. um and any anywhere in between, you know, all the things. So mm-hmm. Yeah, especially gaining that weight. I mean, I do have a a client or patient uh, that I'm working with right now, my tube feeding patient. And she, you know, she for sure has a diagnosed eating disorder and it's so rough because she's pregnant right now and mm. refusing her tube feeding. And it's, uh, it's just, Oh, it's so hard because there's just so many pieces to the puzzle. And I think a lot of people think, you know, Oh, a dietitian alone can help you with an eating disorder. And no, like we can't help you alone. You know, mm-hmm. there's so many pieces to the puzzle. Therapists mm-hmm. are so important. And so if you can kind of touch on who is a part of the recovery with you, and if you are struggling with disordered eating or an eating disorder, kind of who needs to be in your corner supporting you, um, from a healthcare standpoint and friends, family, like what you need in order to recover. Can you kind of dive into that? Sure. I mean, I think what I, I, what I did love about working for, you know, a treatment facility here is that it is such, um, it was such incredible holistic care. So, you know, we had doctors on staff, dietitians, um, therapists, and, um, I mean, really like a person who's in recovery from an eating disorder really needs that they need to have a doctor so that they are making sure like that all of their physical health stuff is okay. Um, a dietitian to make sure that, you know, they're getting that the nutrition that they need therapist to work on, you know, the mental health side of it. Um, and I think also like having a community, so like support groups, um, could be really, really helpful knowing that they're not alone in these experiences. Um, and also with friends and family, getting psychoeducation to friends and family, just because like, you know, it's like those comments with, 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 um, you know, pregnant and postpartum women. I mean, people also get those, those comments anytime. Like if there's weight loss, someone might say like, wow, you lost some weight. You look great. But they're not really asking like what, what's happening in their life that may have caused that. We don't know. It could have been trauma. It could be depression. Um, and so I think it's about making sure that friends and family have psychoeducation around how to, to talk with you. Um, and also like being able to communicate what you need for support, you know, like what are things that are helpful to say or not helpful to say, mm-hmm. um, like what are like activities that are helpful to do for distraction or for you to feel cared for. Um, I think just being able to communicate that with, with your people who are in your corner, like that's vital. Yeah. I think that's just so important to have that family support because I'm sure too, when you were going through it, you know, your parents at the time, I'm sure that they were like, I don't know a lot about eating disorders or, you know, friends. And 
they want to help you, but they don't know how. And I think that's so important to give that education to your spouse, your parents, your friends, your roommates, like whoever's around you so that they know what your triggers are and how to best help you. Because again, if you're surrounded by people who just, they want the best for you, but they don't know how, I mean, that's just so hard. And that's hard for them too, because they, they of course want you to recover, but if they don't know how to help in that Mm -hmm. healing process, I mean, it really is like, again, it's like, if you know somebody who is an alcoholic, you know, having that family support and having um, your relatives know how to support that or any addiction or, you know, anything that you could be in recovery for Mm -hmm. just having that support and knowing how to, to best support them is so important. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I, I think family therapy is really important in, in recovery. So like bringing the family into the sessions and being able to work together on communicating, like, what does this person in recovery need for support and care? Um, that's huge. Yeah, I think sometimes it can be really isolating too when you are going through recovery and someone who you love or um, who loves you doesn't know how to talk to you. And then instead of saying anything, they say nothing. And then Mm -hmm. it's just silence, right? And you're not used to silence. You're used to people complimenting your body or your, you know, your... control like lack or self-control around food or something like that because they didn't know you were struggling and then all of a sudden there's silence because they don't know how to support you which can actually be infinitely more isolating to just hear silence so um yeah I guess is there anything else you want to talk about right now um before we kind of wrap it up here I'd love for you to also share where people can find more from you I'm sure um they have realized how much information you're full of so um if you can let us know that and then anything else you want to kind of touch on before we wrap it up. Yeah. Um, well, I, like I said, I live in Seattle, Washington, so, um, you can reach me, uh, on Instagram. I'm at wetero underscore wellness. So W E T T E R A U underscore wellness. Um, and then I'm also, I have a website, uh, and that's www.wetterowellness.com. Um, so you can find more information about me there. Um, Yeah, I just want to thank you both so much for having me on here. And I just really appreciate this podcast and just talking, talking about diet culture and disordered eating and just having more awareness and conversations about it. It's great. Yeah, Yeah. we, we just wanted to get rid of all the podcasts out there that are teaching people how to be keto and how to to do all of these things. And so Luckily, there are more and more intuitive eating podcasts out there that we are huge fans of. So we're just trying to make all of our presence known, whether it's a therapist um, or dietitians or any really healthcare professional that promotes intuitive eating health at every size. We really just want to get that message out there. So thank you too for what you do. And it's just so nice to have other healthcare professionals in this field. And we have the same vision for people. Um, I think a lot of dietitians too that are trained on eating disorders are trained on you need to count the calories of the patient and all of these things that really are not helpful. <laughs> so yeah, it's good no. to see that there's a movement in the yeah. right direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. I know our listeners got a ton out of it as we did. It's <sighs> always helpful. You know, like Brooke and I always say, we're huge proponents of therapy, especially in this field of intuitive eating um, or eating disorders or whatnot. It's really a team effort. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's everyone has their place and can help. So absolutely. It's so important. So thank you. It's so great chatting with you. And um, this is such, this has been such an incredible episode, really full of great information. So thank you. Awesome. Thank you for having me. 
All right, guys, thank you so much for tuning in today. That was an awesome conversation with Andrea. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. We always love having guests on this podcast. We learn so much and we hope you guys too. So thank you. Yes, and we are still doing a giveaway. So we just wanted to remind you all about that. So we are giving away Fit Snack Snacks, Diet Riot merchandise, an Amazon gift card, and then some amazing books, Health at Every Size, and Intuitive Eating. So if you want to get entered in the giveaway, please write us a written review. And I actually have one right here to read. This is the most recent one from this week. Love from yours, truly. Brooke and Alyssa are such a fun dietitian duo. I love their knowledge and passion for intuitive eating topics and their ability to break down conversations in understandable ways. Listening to them makes me feel like I'm hanging out with my best gal pals. Also, we love you, Claire, and she has an awesome podcast. So go check out yours truly because it's amazing. So thank you for that review. And you get an extra entry to the giveaway after you leave us a written review. If you want a bonus entry, share us, share about us or your favorite episode of Diet Riot Podcast on social media and be sure to tag us. Thanks so much for tuning in today, you guys, and we will see you next Tuesday. 